We'll begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the book of Zephaniah. We thank you that even in a short book like Zephaniah with only three chapters, you were able to pack in information that we need that's useful to us. We ask for your blessing upon it. We ask that you would help us to understand it and appreciate it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're looking at Zephaniah. I've entitled it, Jesus Christ, a Jealous Lord. Zephaniah is one of the lesser known, lesser studied books of the minor prophets. But as I mentioned, it's very, very enlightening, very helpful to understand God's plan. The name Zephaniah, Hebrew is Sevan Yah, which means hidden of Yahweh or hidden by Yahweh or Yahweh has hidden him. And uh, I like to find a, a verse that pertains to the prophet's name, relates to the prophet's name. So I picked uh, Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the, of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The flight characteristics of the book, the facts, the author of the book of Zephaniah was the prophet Zephaniah, a prophet with a royal bloodline, the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Now, the book doesn't actually say that it was King Hezekiah. It just says Hezekiah. But it is generally thought that it's referring to King Hezekiah. Zephaniah 1.1 lists his father and other grandfathers. So we have Cushi and Gedaliah and Amariah, besides Hezekiah. Uh, Zephaniah was probably born around 648 BC. Last week, when I talked about Micah, I mentioned that Micah is unusual in that that even the name of his father is not given. Usually with most of the prophets, it at least gives the name of, of their father. But uh, it doesn't give Micah's father. So that's why it's thought that Micah was probably from a, a family that wasn't very prominent. With Zephaniah, we have just the opposite. It, it uh, traces his geneal genealogy back four generations. So he probably was from a prominent family, from, from the royal family. Zephaniah was among uh, the last of the prophets to prophesy before the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah. He preached during the reign of King Josiah. So his book likely dates to between uh, 640 and 609 BC. That's when, uh, when Josiah reigned. So sometime in that period, uh, the book was written. And scholars disagree about whether it was the early part of his reign or the latter part of his reign. Now, up to this point, we've been looking at prophets who, we looked at a group of prophets who were prophesying at the time when Assyria was the dominant power in the Middle East. Now, with Zephaniah, we're turning to another group of prophets who are prophesying after Assyria had declined and Babylon was on the rise, becoming the, the new superpower of the Middle East. Zephaniah was a prince of the royal house, we think, of Judah. 
and he served as a prophet during the reign of King Josiah. His book addressed the social injustice and moral decay of Judah, as many prophets do, and her neighbors, pointing to and, and warning them of the coming day of the Lord. We'll see that, that expression several times in Zebaniah and also in other prophets. And his wrath upon the nations, including Israel. He was a prophet of the 11th hour. He's come to long when uh, Judah is about to go into captivity, whose ministry led to reform and revival during his lifetime. So remember, he, he uh, prophesied during the reign of Josiah, and, and Josiah did attempt to, to turn Judah around or in, introduce reforms. But at the last possible moment before God's judgment of Judah, so during his lifetime, during Josiah's lifetime, uh, many in, in Judah did mend their ways, but of course, eventually, as we know, they went into captivity. The itinerary of the book, an outline of the book. Well, I, I've divided it up into three sections. The first section is look within. The second section is look around to the other nations. And then the third section is look beyond. In other words, when Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. In the gospel, Zebulonized prediction of the kingdom age points to Christ as the Lord within Israel, the righteous judge of all the earth's nations, and the reigning king of Israel, the Lord. Zebaniah warned Judah that a day of the Lord, a more immediate and local series of judgments, was coming, first against the Jews for their idolatry, and then for the nations whom God would use to punish them. So God used Gentile nations to punish Israel, but they were still held accountable for their actions. These judgments would serve as a type or a preview of the ultimate day of the Lord, when God will judge the entire world in the end times. So there's, once again, a, a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment of this, of this day of the Lord that the prophets speak of. But mercy is as much a characteristic of God as justice is, displayed most obviously in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this aspect, aspect of the Lord's character in the book of Zephaniah too. At the end of time, when all God's enemies are defeated, and Jesus is dwelling as king among Israel, Zephaniah's words will be completely fulfilled. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What a wonderful image this is of the crowning work of redemption. Revelation describes how even during the tribulation, God will set aside and protect a group of 144,000 Jews who believe in him. And Zephaniah framed the picture of the millennial kingdom after the day of the Lord. God's heart is to save all those who will come to him. He proved this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world. The history 
the book of Zebaniah dates to around 620 BC, sometime around there, during the second half of Josiah's reign. Uh, not all scholars agree on that, maybe the first half, second half, but sometime in Josiah's reign. Josiah's six-year reformation project was completed in around 622 BC. Though this project was meant to bring about spiritual revival, many Jews remained stuck in their sinful ways, continuing the practices of idolatry and injustice in the land of Judah. This may be why Zephaniah specifically preached against Baal worship and idolatry. Zephaniah was likely contemporary of several prophets. I mentioned how the prophets that we've looked at so far are a group that uh, prophesied during the time that Assyria was the dominant power. And now we're turning to another group of prophets uh, in which Babylon is the dominant power. So there's, there's Nahum and Habakkuk and Daniel and Ezekiel and Obadiah and Jeremiah. At the time of Zephaniah's writing, Nineveh had not yet been destroyed. So it had, it had declined. It is no longer a, a superpower, but it was still in existence. But Zephaniah prophesied that it would be destroyed. And that was also predicted by Nahum, the prophet. The travel tips, things that we can learn from the book. Suffering tests your faith in God's sovereignty. And you all know that. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've encountered some difficulties. When the winds of adversity blow against you, and sometimes they blow from all directions, don't believe that God, the lie that God doesn't allow such adversity to happen to his kids. God allows bad things to happen because he wants to bring something good from it. As we learn in Romans 8.28. Use Zephaniah's three exhortations to the people of Judah to guide your thoughts and actions as you engage with your culture and anticipate the day of the Lord. So the, the three exhortations that I'm referring to are uh, look within yourself, look around, and look beyond. Look within yourself. Are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth with your whole heart? Are you renewing your mind and rejecting the lies of your culture by praying and reading the Bible regularly? Next, look around. Zephaniah prophesied God's wrath on several nations for their poor treatment of his people. No matter what trials you face in this life, God will uphold you and avenge you if necessary. Don't worry about your enemies. Focus on living out of balance of love, grace, and truth that marks a true child of God. And lastly, look beyond. Zephaniah rounded out his book by looking at the healing and restoration of God's people. Well, one day experienced during the Christ's 1,000 year reign on earth. As believers, we have every reason to rejoice in the Lord because the future he has laid out for us is glorious. The themes of, of Zephaniah. The theme of the book is the vindication of God. Themes of judgment and grace and mercy also predominate 
in, in the book. The theme of Zebuni's message is that Yahweh is still firmly in control of all his world, despite any contrary appearances. Sometimes it may not look like God is in control, but he is. And that he will prove this in the near future by inflicting terrible chastisement on disobedient Judah. This was the, the near fulfillment in, in Zephaniah's day. And complete destruction upon the idolatrous Gentile nations. The wrath can only be deferred by timely repentance. So there was a great deal of repentance in the day of Zephaniah and King Josiah who was ruling at that time. Of course, it didn't last. Once Josiah had passed from the scene, Zephaniah's location, Zephaniah apparently lived in Jerusalem. Remember, he's of the royal family, so that makes sense. He referred to Jerusalem as this place, so that's where he was. He describes its topography with intimate knowledge, so he knows Jerusalem well because he lives there. His message was definitely to the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom and its capital city. Syncretism. This is a passage from the first chapter of Zephaniah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. The second half of verse 5 reads literally, those who bow down, who swear allegiance to the Lord, and those who swear oaths by their king. Apparently, this does not refer to separate groups of people, to different groups, the loyal followers of the Lord and the idolaters, but to one group that engaged in the syncretistic worship of both the Lord and a pagan god, referred to here as their king. And that's a prevalent problem in our society, isn't it? People who say, yeah, I, I believe in God, the God of the Bible, and I, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in these other things, you know. Uh, you hear many people here today say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And what they mean by that is, well, even though they claim to believe in the God of the Bible and, and believe in Jesus, they think that spirituality is kind of a smorgasbord. So I'll take a little bit of uh, astrology, a little bit of reincarnation, uh, a little bit of uh, getting in touch with my spirit guides and just blending it all together. That's syncretism. The identity of, the, of this pagan god that it's talking about here is not clear. Though Baal, the Ammonite god, Milcom, and, uh, or Moloch would be, are prime candidates. The, the name of the god Milcom is interesting because 
there may be a deliberate play on words here because Milcom, that the name of this god, is very similar to the name to the word Malcom, their king. So Milcom, Milcom. Um, these gods were popular during the reign of Josiah. He attempted to eliminate the worship of all three through his reforms. But of course, there were people who persisted in worshiping those false pagan gods. Uh, an expression that you will encounter in, in the book of Zephaniah that might be kind of puzzling to you is in verse uh, 9 of chapter 1, it says, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. What does it mean, the people who leap over the threshold? The reference to leaping over the threshold may allude to a pagan practice. According to 1 Samuel 5, 5, after the incident involving the Ark of the Covenant, you know, where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle, the Philistine priest at the god uh, Dagon's temple in Ashdod, a Philistine city, avoided stepping on the threshold. The avoidance of the threshold reflects a common pagan belief that demons live near the threshold of the house. So a, a superstition that I've heard in our culture that's kind of kind of the same idea. Maybe you've heard uh, the, the saying, step on a crack, break your mother's back. You know, the, the idea that bad things will happen if you step on a crack. Uh, the invaders, Zephaniah expects an imminent foreign invasion that will bring the destruction of Jerusalem. Scholars have been divided regarding what enemy the prophet anticipates. So there was going to be some invading army, but which army is it? Some scholars think it was Assyria. Some scholars think it was Scythia. And some scholars think it was Babylon. Many scholars argue that the enemy anticipated is Assyria. Judah had been an Assyrian satellite through much of the 7th century BC. Annexation by Assyria and the accompanying deportation of the population, both being the fate of the northern kingdom, that's what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they were constant threats for Judah as well, that Assyria might attack them and conquer them and carry them into captivity. However, about the middle of the reign of Ashurbanipal, an Assyrian king, and I see you smiling because it, <laughs> you, you, you've seen the, the uh, thing on YouTube, right, about Ashurbanipal. <laughs> um, I'll have to have him play that for you if you're interested. <laughs> Assyria lapsed into a rapid decline about the middle of the, of the 7th century. And by the year 627, the Assyrian power had been broken. And Assyria represented a little threat to Judah at the time of, of, uh, of Zephaniah. So we don't think that Assyria was the invader that he was talking about. The mention of Nineveh 
as a candidate for divine judgment does not mean that Assyria was still a threat to Judah. Nineveh is the, the capital of Assyria. And, and Zebuniah does talk about how Nineveh will be destroyed. But it was no longer a threat to, to Nineveh, or to, to Israel, to Judah. To the contrary, the prophet appears to reflect on the fact that Assyrian power was already diminished. So it had already declined, was about to be destroyed. Even if one could establish a date for Zebuniah's ministry before Josiah's reforms, in other words, early in Josiah's reign, Assyria is not likely to have been a serious threat to Judah. So Assyria is probably not the invader that Zebuniah saw. The Scythians, now, you may not have heard of the Scythians before because they don't, they aren't a prominent nation in the biblical narrative. They do uh, touch on the, the nations of the Middle East once in a while, but they're not a, a prominent nation in the, in the biblical narrative. The Scythians were a group of nomadic tribes inhabiting the southern steppes of Russia, so they're quite a ways from the, from the Middle East, largely an area north of the Black Sea. Herodotus, the Greek historian, mentions that the Scythians conducted a raid against the Philistine city of Ashkelon and against Egypt during the reign of Semeticus, Semeticus I. So that, that was in the 600s BC. So this raid would have come between 633 and 610, sometime around there. And here, here's a map showing you the Scythians. So they're up north here, up north of the Black Sea. Here's the Black Sea. So they're quite a ways from the Middle East. The Israel and the Philistines are down here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So, but Herodotus says that the Scythians did, in the seventh century, come down and, and, and uh, conduct raids. In the among the Philistines and on into Egypt. Scholars have long debated whether this raid formed the backdrop for Zebuniah's anticipation of a foreign attack and for Jeremiah's prophecies about a foe from the north. So some scholars think maybe that's what Zephaniah and Jeremiah were talking about. Many have been skeptical about the reliability of Herodotus' report, although uh, archaeological evidence increasingly tends to lend credence to the reality of a Scythian incursion. So they probably really did uh, conduct raids down that far south. However, the Scythian raids reported by Herodotus was apparently brief and may have been confined to sites along the international coastal highway. In Roman times, it's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, such that it had little direct impact on Judah. So Jerusalem is not on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast. It's, it's quite a ways inland. So these raids conducted by the Scythians along the coast probably didn't have much effect on Judah. So that probably wasn't the army, the invading army that Zephaniah was talking about. 
Zephaniah is anticipating a disaster on the day of the Lord. This is the, the near-term fulfillment of the day of the Lord that will affect the surrounding nations, not only affect Judah, but the nation, surrounding nations, and even Assyria itself. He appears to expect the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the population, so that he looks forward to the survival and gathering of a remnant. So like the other prophets, Zephaniah is looking forward to Babylon attacking Judah, taking them into captivity, and then he's talking about a remnant coming back after the captivity. Such a far-reaching disaster seems beyond a Scythian raid. The Scythian raid was just a quick temporary thing. If Assyria is one of the targets, the threat would scarcely originate in Assyria. So Assyria is going to be destroyed, so we don't think that this attack is coming from Assyria. The only remaining candidate for the source of the threat Zephaniah anticipates would be Babylon. The writer of Kings reports that the coming invasion by Babylon was already anticipated at the time of Josiah. So even at the time of Josiah, which was quite some time before Babylon actually invaded Judah, already they were beginning to, to fear Babylon as a rising superpower. Babylon was only beginning its resurgence of power to the time, at the time of Josiah's death. So even when Josiah died, Babylon was still not quite up to full power yet, but they weren't getting there. And Babylonian incursions into Syria-Palestine would not begin until after the Battle of Carchemish in 604. So it's going to be some time yet before Babylon flexes its muscles. But Zephaniah and other prophets were looking to that time. But one would only doubt that Babylon was the invader Zephaniah spoke of if you are a liberal scholar who doesn't believe in the possibility of predictive prophecy. We saw that with uh, Isaiah and with Micah. That the liberal scholars said, well, that, that, that part couldn't have been written by Isaiah. That, that part couldn't have written, been written by Micah because that would mean that, that these men foresaw what was going to happen. Well, it, we believe in, in a God who is the creator of the entire universe, a God who is sovereign over all that, in, that universe. And so he is certainly capable of revealing his thoughts to the prophets. Now, I mentioned that you can think of an outline of Zephaniah as looking within, looking around, and looking beyond. Let's um, take a closer look at those three parts. In, in part one, which I call looking within, first of all, we have an announcement of, of a worldwide judgment. But then we have an announcement of a judgment upon Judah. We have a proclamation of the approaching day of the Lord. We have an announcement of judgment upon Judah, Jerusalem, once again. And we have another proclamation of the approaching day of the Lord. And once again, we have an announcement of worldwide judgment. And then at the end of this first section, there's a transition into the, the second section, the second part.
in part two, the looking around, we have an announcement of judgment upon Philistia, an announcement of judgment upon Moab and Ammon, an announcement of judgment upon Cush, an announcement of judgment upon Syria. And I'll speak in just a minute about why those particular nations were, were chosen. And then once again, we have a woe oracle against Jerusalem. So the, the Israelites were very happy to hear about the judgment upon these other nations. But God is reminding them, I haven't forgotten about you. You're still going to be punished for what you've done. And then at the end of, of part two, there's another transition into part three. And then in part three, we have an announcement of worldwide judgment. And then we have an announcement of worldwide salvation. So there is going to be judgment upon the whole world, but the future isn't entirely bleak because there is worldwide salvation that will follow. And then Zephaniah ends his book by talking about an announcement of salvation for Jerusalem, specifically for the people of Israel. Another way that you can look at these three sections is that you can think of three R's, retribution, repentance, and redemption. So this, the first section, you can think of it as, as the execution of retribution. God's jealousy is, is kindled against Israel. Remember that I entitled this presentation uh, Jesus Christ, a jealous God. Zebaniah tells who will bring the judgment, God. What he will do, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Why he will do it? Because of idolatry. Now, when I, when I say that, remember once again that there's a, a, a near-term fulfillment and there's also a far-term fulfillment. And one of the things that I talked about last week when I talked about Micah is that as you read the prophets, you can't expect everything to be neatly laid out for you in sequential order. No, first this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. The prophets uh, jump back and forth between the near-term fulfillment and the far-term fulfillment. And you have to keep that in mind as you're, as you're reading through the prophets because obviously with the near-term fulfillment of the day of the Lord or a day of the Lord, the, uh, the part about I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth that wasn't fulfilled in the near-term fulfillment we look to the far-term fulfillment to, to see the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. He, he, uh, Zebunai tells us on whom it will fall, the officials, the princes, the inhabitants of Judah. And he tells us how great the judgment will be. The great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. In the fire of his jealous wrath, 
all the earth shall be consumed. The exhortation to repentance, God's jealousy is kindled against the Gentiles. So in the first section, we focused on how God is going to judge Judah. In the second section, the focus is on how God is going to judge the Gentile nations. Before the judgment falls, there is a time for repentance. Zephaniah gives God's call to Judah. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. But God's condemnation on the Gentiles is coming. The Lord will be terrible against them. Yea, he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him they will bow down. So the, the Gentile nations are going to learn who is the true God. Representative nations from the four points of the compass are chosen. I mentioned earlier when I was announcing, when I was telling you about those announcements of judgment, the reason the, nation, the particular nations were chosen, uh, that were chosen is because they, they represent the, the four points of the compass. Philistia to Judah's west, Moab and Ammon to the east, Cush to the south, and Assyria to the north. Now, Assyria was actually located to the northeast of Judah, but Assyrian armies uh, came around and invaded from the north. So they were northeast of Judah, but they would come down from the north. So that's why they thought of Assyria as a northern nation. Nor will God overlook the corruption of Jerusalem. Remember, he, he warns the, the Gentile nations that they will be punished, but he hasn't forgotten about Judah and its corruption. Woe to her that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. And that's always the, the proud attitude of the sinners. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Not even God. The list of nations culminates with Jerusalem. As in chapter 1, the Lord's judgment is worldwide in scope, but it focuses on God's own covenant community as its primary target. As we are told in the New Testament, that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. However, the message is not entirely negative as notices of salvation for both Judah and the nations appear, anticipating the dominant theme of part three. So the, those first two parts of the book are about judgment, but part three focuses on the restoration that will occur in the end times. The expectation of redemption God's jealousy is quenched for Judah. The final heat of God's wrath will accomplish the cleansing of the nations. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger. Yet at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech 
that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that pure speech in just a minute. Then will follow the restoration of Israel. For I will leave in the midst of you a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. This restoration of the remnant will result in the jubilation of Israel. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So as, as many of the prophets do, uh, Zephaniah is personifying Judah. Personifying the city of Jerusalem. This, this is the verse that I told you about that it's probably the most famous verse in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. I think um, the, the thing that I find so fascinating about that is how and it uh, is also used that same kind of terminology in the book of Acts in the New Testament. After the day of Pentecost, it talks about them serving him with one accord. And of course, the, the, jo the joke is that they drove a Honda because they were all in one accord. The Lord anticipated a time when he would purify the lips of the peoples. That's literally what it says, the lips of the peoples. And that, of course, means the language, but in the Hebrew it talks about the lips of the peoples. Enabling them to praise the Lord in unison as they serve him. The prophecy portrays a time when the people of the earth would again speak one language. It depicts a reversal of the Babel event back in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, when God confused the speech of the people and caused them to scatter over the earth. At that time, the whole world had one language, literally one lip, this is what it says in the Hebrew, and a common speech. You read about that in Genesis 11. But the Lord confused the language. Literally, literally, he confused the lip of the whole world. However, in the day of salvation, depicted in Zephaniah 3.9, the Lord would give the peoples a purified lip. The appearance of the word lip to refer to language, recalls this episode in, in, at Babel in, in the book of Genesis. And the term barura, purified, plays on the sound of the verb balal, confused. 
employed in Genesis 11. So in other words, in Genesis 11, the language is Bilal, it was confused. In the future, it will be Barura, it will be purified. The reference to the people being scattered also alludes to the Babel event. For the term used here appears three times in Genesis 11 to describe how the Lord scattered the people. At Babel, the rebellious people joined forces to build a tower to heaven. They were punished by having their language confused and by being scattered over the globe. In the future age, they would return from these distant lands where they were scattered, join forces, the Hebrew literally says shoulder to shoulder. Uh, that, that's what the Hebrew says for that expression that's translated with one accord, they're shoulder to shoulder, they're joined in unison. And with a unified language, they would worship the God, the Lord that they had once defied. So they were scattered far and wide, but they will be in units and they will be shoulder to shoulder. Um, the expression day of the Lord, which Zephaniah uses frequently. Several of the prophets use that expression and probably the most noted one is, is Joel that we will look at his prophecies later on, but he uses that expression, day of the Lord. But actually, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Zephaniah uses that expression even, even more than Joel does. The expression appears frequently in the Hebrew Bible, though it is applied to various events, so that the day of the Lord doesn't always refer to just one thing. In the most basic sense, it is a day when the Lord intervenes in the world to judge his enemies. Here in Zephaniah, it encompasses both the Babylonian conquest of Judah in 586 BC and a more far-reaching judgment on a worldwide scale that will occur in the eschaton, in the end times, in the last days. Zephaniah compared this day to a sacrifice where the Lord would slaughter his victims, much as a priest slaughters sacrificial animals. Those victims would include members of the royal family whose clothing betrayed their paganism, as well as those responsible for social injustice. So they, even the royal family had adopted the ways of paganism so that by their very clothing they were they could be identified as people who served pagan gods and practiced pagan customs. The day of the Lord is mentioned seven times in Zephaniah. He seems to be aware of the earlier use of similar concepts in Amos and in Isaiah. So Amos and Isaiah before him had used that expression, the day of the Lord. And Zephaniah seems to be aware of that use. Almost without exception, when day is used in scripture, it means a period of time. If a number is used before it, like 40 days or three days, then it is a day of 24 hours. 
And the most notable example of that, of course, is in Genesis 1, where it talks about you know, this happened on day one and then this happened on day two. And so whenever you see a number associated with a day, it does refer to a 24-hour period, contrary to what some of the old earth people teach us that, well, a day is you know, just some indeterminate long period of time. But when a number is used with a day, it's, it's a day. <laughs> um, but when you use, you use day alone, without a number, like the day of the Puritan or Lincoln's day, you mean the time in which they lived. So when the word says the day of the Lord, it means a time uh, of the Lord's special working. So it may not refer to just a 24-hour period. It's a, a time, a special time of the Lord's working, which may be longer or shorter than that, than 24 hours. To the Jews of Zebaniah's day, it meant the time when God would deal with his people in punishment and captivity. The future day of the Lord is the period of the great tribulation and the millennium. So, and even beyond that, it's uh, the, the tribulation, the millennium, and then on beyond that into the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. That's all in the day of the Lord. So if, you're, if you say, well, is the day of the Lord the tribulation? Is it the millennial kingdom? Is it the eternal state? And the answer is yes, all of the above. Judah was taught that the day of the Lord was coming when there would be a special reckoning. So the day of the Lord was indeed coming for them and is still coming for the world. For Zephaniah, this great day was an imminent historical expectation. In other words, it's something that he was expecting would happen very soon. And of course, a day of the Lord did happen very soon. However, this historical act of divine intrusion also foreshadowed an eschatological judgment when sin would be abolished from the earth. Obviously, that didn't happen in the short and the near-term fulfillment, but it will happen after the eschatological fulfillment of that day of the Lord. So in the ultimate day of the Lord, creation dissolves. The cosmos convulses and returns to the darkness of primeval chaos. The universe reverts to its lifeless and unformed state. Yahweh comes as a warrior on that great day of holy war against evil. His presence is signaled by a blazing theophany. So once again, don't think of the prophets as giving you a neat timeline Verse this happens, and this happens, and this happens. So in, in chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about how the, the creation is going to be dissolved. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about the, the second coming of the Messiah. Well, obviously, the second coming of the Messiah happened before uh, the elements are dissolved. So... Don't, don't think of the prophets as giving you a neat timeline. All of these different things are just kind of 
jumbled together and spoken of by the prophets. So as we get into the New Testament, we, we are given a, a timeline. We get, are giving a sequence of events. Here it's talking in Revelation 19 about the return of the Lord. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. So here we, we read about, we learn about the Messiah acting as a warrior. And we read about this brilliant theophany when he returns. In uh, Second Peter, we learn about the, the, re the reversal, the change of the creation, but the day of the Lord. See, here's that indication that, that the day of the Lord also includes the, the elements melting with fervent heat, as it says in, King, in the King James Version, and on into the eternal state. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Ever since that I learned about this chiastic structure that's used so often in scripture, I'm just fascinated with it. In chapter 3, towards the end of the, of the chapter, there's a, a chiasm. Um, and, and you know probably how, by this time, how chiasms work. Jerusalem's shame will be removed. The Lord will preserve and protect, protect a remnant. Jerusalem is urged to rejoice over the Lord's presence. And then we start working our way back out again. Jerusalem is urged to take comfort in the Lord's saving presence. The Lord will restore a remnant. So in, in B and B prime, you see the, the remnant idea. And then in A prime, Jerusalem's shame is removed. And that was what we saw in A. So there's a, there's a parallelism between A and A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime. But what is especially fascinating about this chiastic structure is that there's a chiasm within a chiasm. <laughs> so if we take the, the, the two middle items here, the, the C and the C prime, and we take those, we can bring those out into a chiasm. And that's what I've given you a copy of, is that, that chiasm that we can build from C and C prime because it's too big to put all in one slide. <laughs> if I put it all in one slide, it's so small that you can't read it. So I, I, I put half of it on one slide and half of it on another slide, but I also gave you a handout so you can see the whole thing. So in, in verse 14a, we see we, an instruction to sing. And 14b, be glad. C, he has turned back your enemy. D, the Lord is with you. And E, never again will you fear. 
And then in the second half of the chiasm, we start working our way back out. So it says, do not fear. And remember the, the E, oops. E was, uh, never again will you fear. Uh, D says, the Lord is with you. D prime, excuse me. But looking back at D, the Lord is with you. That same idea. C prime, he is mighty to save. See, he has turned back your enemies. B, he will rejoice over you with gladness. And looking back at B, it says, be glad. And A prime, he will rejoice over you with singing. And once again, A refers to sing. So that's the chiasm here that's within a chiasm within a chiasm. Jerusalem's sinful people, referred to as those who rejoice in their pride, would be removed, leaving the godly to populate the city. So the wicked are removed, and that remnant that remains populates the city of Jerusalem. The Lord will protect this remnant, and in contrast to the proud sinners of an earlier era, Jerusalem would rejoice in the Lord's deliverance. The, the proud don't, e- want, don't even want to submit to the Lord, but the humble rejoice in his deliverance. The returning exiles, compared to lame and scattered sheep, would return to the city and join the ranks of the godly. The book concludes with an ensuring word to those exiles who are promised honor and praise. And that's the short but profound little book of Zephaniah. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have a plan of salvation, a a plan to bring your government and your rule to the entire earth. We are thankful that we can have a part in that. And we are also thankful that you have given us knowledge and understanding of that plan that you are working out. And we are so thankful that you have given us that hope. So even in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this brief life, we can look forward to the glorious return of your Son and his kingdom upon this earth. We thank you for that. We ask that you will help us to always keep sight of that kingdom, that coming kingdom, to appreciate it and rejoice in it, and to be sustained by that precious truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.